Welcome to Wilma's series on OEM updates with this week's session on PPE in the world of COVID-19. My name is Dr. Alia Khan and I am today's moderator. Wilma is a Western Occupational and Environmental Medicine Association and a subcomponent of ACOM. We have designed these Wilma podcasts to be a tool and a benefit for Wilma members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in planning this session have no relevant financial relationships to, to disclose. Our speaker today does occasionally provide advice concerning respirator programs. As COVID-19 has been wreaking havoc throughout the world, healthcare workers have been pushed to the front lines to battle the virus's force on humankind. As a novel coronavirus, little was known on its clinical impact when it first emerged. Among the many clinical questions that physicians have been grappling with, the question of appropriate PPE has been a recurrent concern. Hospitals and clinics across the U.S. have evolving policies on how best to protect their employees. Meanwhile, the CDC has also been evolving in their recommendations. There have been recommendations for homemade masks, including scarves and bandanas for the public as well. Many healthcare workers are worried about treating patients with COVID-19 without the appropriate protective equipment. As we see physicians, including residents, nurses, and other healthcare workers succumb to COVID-19. The dwindling stockpiles of PPE have even sent many physicians to buy or make their own PPE. But what is appropriate PPE? The worry grows further over possible aerosol transmission considering we have been largely protecting ourselves from droplet spread. As occupational medicine physicians, we need to protect our colleagues on the front lines, as well as those in other essential businesses that have public interaction. We have Dr. Philip Harbour here to help us answer some of these questions. Dr. Harbour is a professor of public health at the University of Arizona. He previously served as professor and chief of the Division of Occupational Environmental Medicine at UCLA. His training includes fellowships in pulmonary and in occupational and environmental medicine at Hopkins. He combines research, teaching, and clinical practice. He has done extensive research in occupational lung disease, respirator effects, and informatic systems. He also leads the ACOM group on the Research and Educational Institution, REI, Occupational Hazards. He has served as president of WOMA and on the board of directors of ACOM. Dr. Harbour, welcome to WOMA's podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, as a long-term member of WOMA, I really appreciate all the educational information that, that WOMA always provides. Well, I really appreciate that feedback. Um, so I want to start off with going over um, what do essential workers, such as those that work in healthcare, pharmacies, grocery stores, need to know when, when trying to decide what PPE to use? Well, um, first of all, um, they have to recognize that choosing PPE, whether it's a respirator or a face shield or gloves, et cetera, that's, that's not the, um, the highest priority. The highest priority is limiting exposures by other methods. However, the reality is there are going to be exposures um, to, um, to many healthcare workers and to workers in other public facing um, fields. And I think the um, thing that's most important to recognize is that the um, presence of a of a device, a um, 
whether it's a respirator or any other piece of equipment, is less important than how it fits into an entire program. Specifically, it's really important to um, for workers, whether in high-risk aerosol-generating situations like bronchoscopy or intubating a patient, to lower-risk things like driving a bus, to really figure out, um, is there a better way to for protection, and secondly, um, how high is the risk? How high is the hazard? Because that's going to determine what level of, of respirator you need. Is do you need a powered air purifying respirator, or something much less effective but good enough for the circumstances? Finally, I, I think some people, no, no one listening to this podcast, I'm sure, but some people may be um, in the public may be confused about the fabric masks that people in public are supposed to wear. Face coverings like respirators and other devices serve two purposes. One is to protect the user, the wearer, the worker from inhaling viral um, particles that are in the air um, from other people. The other is to protect other people from things we may exhale. So the reason that the public is being asked to use um, fabric coverings, t-shirts, scarves, um, um, relatively loose-fitting devices is not so much to protect them, but to protect um, um, other people from anything they exhale. Whereas when we're talking about healthcare workers and other, other essential workers who are at risk, you really want something that's going to be effective in protecting them. That is, a loose t-shirt around the face is not going to be good enough. So I guess that would be the first thing to remember, to separate what's the purpose of it. Second, to really be sure that you figure out what the level of risk is. And that's where actually occupational physicians and occupational nurses may be really helpful. You know, because we've, WOMA members are always in the field of, and have the expertise in figuring out how big a risk is. And I think we should be offering that kind of advice. And again, it's really important, as I said, um, to pick the device that's appropriate for the level of risk and um, know that some are much more riskier than some occupations, some settings are much more riskier than others. And finally, as occupational health professionals, we really need to encourage the development of adequate training programs, not just give out devices, but we really need to make sure that our employees and the public understands what works, what doesn't, when you should use one and when you shouldn't. And that we don't make things worse by giving people a false sense of security. So I think you asked a really important question and I, I just would encourage us all to use our professional expertise to do it really well. Yeah, I mean, you make some really great points. Um, looking at this from a whole person or whole situation point of view, um, because some people are getting very focused on the actual PPE that they need to use um, and not thinking about the actual situation, how we can reduce the exposure. And then of course the training that's involved, um, providing that education will also help uh, allay fears, I believe. Um, you also made this really interesting chart which shows the continuum of PPE along with the continuum of risk. And it's a great way to visualize what someone needs when. So um, can you go over your recommendations for PPE for the most common situations healthcare workers encounter? Um, sure. Um, I think, as I said before, the main thing is to figure out what the risk is. So some things are really high, high risk. 
of producing very high level aerosols. Um, as a pulmonary guy, of course, we worry about intubation and bronchoscopy, um, creating a lot of a lot pretty high exposures. Um, other procedures such as suctioning, uh, particularly if it's not well controlled, can do that. Something we need to think about in healthcare is also the people who work in the laboratories. Again, um, right now, um, there aren't many viral cultures being done, but as in, set, in some laboratory settings, there's also quite a, um, a risk of, of exposure to specimens. And I think um, CDC has specific guidelines that, are, that people who have labs should look at. But again, the really high, um, high aerosol exposure procedures, I think really should have a powered air purifying respirator. Um, maybe in the most extreme situation, it might be okay, but not optimal to use a fit tested N95 plus a face shield. However, um, high risk really deserves something, something better like, like a PAPR whenever it's available. Um, also to remember engineering controls um, can also be really important um, when we're looking at these procedures. In other words, um, there are a variety of, of devices um, available to basically create a shield and even have some outward um, ventilation so that there is not um, unrestricted movement of the patient's cough um, to the operator. Okay, a, lower, a somewhat less risky area is patient care, particularly in hospitals and even ambulatory clinics where there is a likelihood of significant um, um, number of people coming in who may have COVID-19. Um, COVID um, in these, it also makes sense to wear a, um, a fit-tested N95. A PAPR probably isn't, um, isn't necessary in these settings, but a properly trained user who's been fit-tested for the specific N95 really is um, a reasonable um, minimal expectation. And I know there's been a lot of discussion about um, given the shortage, can these, are we gonna run out of these? I think more and more it's becoming clearer that for a limited number of times, these actually can be disinfected and reused. So the healthcare worker using an N95 should look, of course, look at the device to make sure that it's not wet and it's not deformed because then it's not useful. But again, most importantly, remember, if it doesn't fit right and if it's not worn properly, it's not gonna work. The other thing for the um, sort of general healthcare setting is to remember how to put it on and take it off properly, the donning and doffing without, um, without contaminating yourself or contaminating surfaces. Um, there's actually a, um, a good step-by-step a, a good -step guide on the ACOM website that was really aimed at the general public, but it's not bad for healthcare workers also. So again, in most healthcare settings where there's a significant risk, a fit-tested N95 makes sense. Now, there's also a lot of use of surgical or procedure masks as opposed to N95s. These, of course, don't fit um, tightly against the face. They, um, they, they, have a, they have some utility. There actually is some um, controversy about whether these are protective to the user. Um, clearly, they're designed to protect the patient against what we exhale. In other words, if I'm doing a surgical procedure and I'm exhaling large droplets, um, the, these devices will capture most of these so they don't fall in the wound. Whether they protect the, the user, the, the healthcare worker, is, is moot. 
there are really two big studies, the McIntyre and the Radonovich, that get quoted a lot. Um, these were well before um, COVID-19. These were looking at, um, at other respiratory diseases in big, big randomized, well-done controlled studies, one in the US and one outside the United States. And one said, yep, surgical masks are pretty good. And the other said, nope, they're not as good. So the bottom line is it, it's, um, it's unknown at this point. Um, it's, um, if there's a real shortage of N95s, perhaps it's, it's a temporary solution. Um, then you get, you know, we're talking about moving down in hazard level from um, high aerosol generators to patient care where you're close to the patient um, to being in the um, general area. And here again, there's some, um, some difference of opinion. I'm sure that um, there'll be a scientific answer, but we won't have it for another, it won't be available to us for a while probably. So for now, it still makes sense to, it seems to me to use a good level of protection. Um, a while ago, people used to believe and have the dogma that there are only two ways things spread. They either spread by um, droplets or by aerosol. And um, there's a nice dividing line so that if it's droplet um, spread, um, you only need one kind of protection. And if it's aerosol, you have to go to something else. I think the data are fairly um, fairly uncontroversial anymore, although not everybody agrees, that um, that's an arbitrary distinction. Clearly, there are some that spread like crazy by aerosol, like measles, and some that are less likely to do so. But I think it's foolish to believe that um, that COVID-19 is purely a, a droplet and somehow magically at a couple, at a couple of feet from um, the patient, the exposure immediately disappears. A number of um, a number of findings suggest that there really is some aerosol transmission, such as um, the, the famous choir study, I think it was in New York, where a bunch of people in a choir got infected because they were um, singing loudly, et cetera, as well as some studies finding um, 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 evidence right. of viral RNA. So basically, I would be cautious. And then you get to the lower risk areas, like clearly some healthcare workers who just sit in, the, um, in a separate building doing billing you know, they're, they're healthcare workers, but they're not, um, or people doing telemedicine from home, you know, they, they're, they're not a particularly um, great, get greater risk. So again, we have a double responsibility because we, um, we not only have to protect ourselves, but we have to um, um, recognize that if we're infected, we're going to infect our patients. So again, I would um, suggest look at the level of risk and in really high, high risk areas, something like a PAPR is pretty advisable in most patient care settings. A fit-tested N95 may, although again, some people would say that surgical masks are okay, surgical are in, in some settings. And then when you get to the general, you know, the general essential worker setting, that's where, again, as occupational physicians and nurses, we can really give advice to really see what's more like a bronchoscopist versus what's more like sitting in the basement in an office. So I hope that hasn't been too confusing, but the bottom message, the bottom line is pick the right device for the right setting. Right. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts came to my head while you were saying that because, um, you know, we're being, uh, you know, we 
we were told initially not to wear any mask in the ambulatory setting, and now um, we are. And, and you're, so you're suggesting that we should also be wearing the N95 in ambulatory settings, correct? I think it makes I think it makes a lot of sense to do so. Um, what if um, sorry? What if you know? What if you have the patient also wearing a surgical mask? So you have that double protection. Um, would that be appropriate? for you to wear a surgical mask as a healthcare provider? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't have a, a definitive answer to do this or do that, but um, you're still relying on the patient consistently using the, the device. The other thing is if it's a, um, a high throughput patient situation where you're, the patient, you're getting a new patient every um, 12 to 15 minutes, Remember the study that was published in the New England Journal that everyone quotes mm -hmm. shows that um, the viral particles are present in the air for several hours. So even if um, patient number one is a good person and wears his, his or her mask regularly, um, you're going to walk into the room and maybe the last patient wasn't so good um, mm -hmm. about wearing it. And so the aerosol is still going to be in the air. So I think that it, um, it makes sense for the healthcare worker, at least now, to, to be protected. And again, we know an N95 that's fit tested is better than, a, well, we don't know. The, the studies are controversial, but there's good reason to believe that it, it, it's better. So if it's available, it, it, makes, it makes sense to use it. Where there is a, um, a shortage, obviously a higher priority should go to using them in settings where um, we know the patients are in patients with, um, with respiratory disorders. What do you think? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, it's uh, it's a, it's kind of a, you have to evaluate the situation at, at um, case by case situation and, and make that judgment. Um, and if we do have enough N95 respirators, to me, it makes sense to use them in those type of situations. Yeah, from a broader perspective, if this were something like crystalline silica, we wouldn't get into this discussion, well, I don't know if it's going to be released in this mining operation or sandblasting. No, if there's a reasonable possibility of it, you put on a respirator. And so I think, I think to the extent that we can do it, we ought to, we ought to try to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, I, I agree. Um, and you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you know, I've been seeing many people get really innovative in how we're testing and treating for COVID-19. So, you know, the role of engineering and administrative controls and helping create a safer environment for healthcare and essential workers. Um, can you go a little more detail about that? You know, I've heard some hospitals in even Southern California using a box or a barrier while doing intubations. Right. It, it's not just um, Southern California. These are um, um, these, these are getting used a lot in various places. So engineering controls such as those are good. On the NIOSH website, they have a on their on their science blog, I believe they have a um, a very simple um, hood device that you can build to put over the head of the bed. So engineering controls are quite quite feasible. Um, adequate ventilation, um, obvious things that apply in supermarkets as well as healthcare, um, put up a partition so that um, the patient coughs and has really big particles, even the kind you can see, it's not gonna hit the worker. I notice um, supermarkets now have um, the plexiglass shields and you know we, we can do the same, same, the, the same thing. Um, 
to use engineering controls as well. Um, the other thing, of course, are um, are policies of watching how common something is in the community. You know, if that if you happen to be in um, Sacramento and there's a big outbreak, you know that the obviously you need to be a little more cautious than if you're in some place where at least this week there's not a big a big outbreak. The problem is that for COVID-19, because it's so transmissible in the pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic stage, counting cases is a lagging indicator. Like the economists talk about lagging indicators. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing, you know, so the deaths we're seeing now are, you know, from people who got infected um, weeks ago, and even the the admissions we have now are um, from from before. But as 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 more uh, reverse um, transcriptase um, PCR testing is available, there'll probably be a better idea about the um, the actual prevalence in the um, in the community at any time. So I think, as you said, these engineering controls, shields, and things like that are important. The other, of course, is um, administrative controls, and we all we all know in universities that the tradition was, for example, that five people walk in the room to see the patient. Well, you know, that's hardly necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, typically one person, one person can do that. So you want to, um, you want to limit it. The other thing, and sometimes these are quite obvious if you think about it, when it comes to intubation, don't let the PG1 do it. Um, you know, get somebody who's experienced to do it. You know, not somebody who's pretty good at getting the tube in on the first shot, rather than yeah. You know, after standing there with for five minutes trying to find it, and again, plan the intubations. Um, you know, plan the bronchoscopies instead of doing it in a crash um, when you don't have time to get a good respirator or have time to get a good operator or to put the shield in place. Figure out what's coming and um, do it right. Obviously, um, try to sequester these. This is a bigger challenge in non-healthcare um, essential worker settings, but I think, again, I hope that you know Woma and ACOM can can provide advice to the many um, small employers who don't have um, the benefit of a, of a corporate medical director or corporate industrial hygienist or corporate nurse to advise, but to give some advice on how to how to do this. And then finally, and here's why I'd appreciate your opinions. What do you think is going to be the administrative aspect of this? Um, I can see it coming. Um, as we start, as people start doing antibody testing to say who's possibly immune, et cetera, um, somebody's going to have to think through a policy of whether you're going to say, okay, if you've got antibodies, you can work, and if you don't have antibodies, you don't work. And conversely, if um, we're going to start, if we have to get ADA policies, I mean, I think everybody in occupational health knows about ADA, American Disabilities Act, are people who have risk factors, how are we going to deal with them, whether it's being aged, you know, whether it's age or whether it's a specific disorder? Will we have, will we as occupational physicians and nurses give advice on using that to select um, where people work or is that, or are we really going to, um, sort of let people select on their own. So anyhow, this is an interesting time. And I, uh, you know, I, I hope that, I, I think you've raised some really important questions and I wonder what, what your thoughts are on these. 
Well, I think that's a great topic for another podcast. You know, I, I think we're all, all thinking about that. Um, we did another podcast on serology testing and just to try to understand the implications of that and the limitations. And these are like the big questions on how we reopen our society um, and whether antibodies will really tell us if someone is immune um, is another big question. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, I think this is a really a topic for further discussion and is very interesting, especially from the Ahmed point of view. But I do think respirators do have a do have a getting narrow again. They're not the most important thing, but they should mm -hmm. be done. They should be done right. Yeah. And um, it, it really is important to pick the right device for the level of risk and to make sure that some, that there, somebody who knows what they're doing is involved in helping design the program and making sure that the training is appropriate, because I think that's that's as important as picking the right device. Yeah, all great points. Dr. Harper, thank you for providing us with the most up-to-date information, which I know many of us will find useful, and we will continue to follow up for any additional updates. Um, as mentioned earlier, Dr. Harper has created a chart to easily visualize PPE, PPE use, which we'll post on WOMA's website next to this podcast link. Please stay safe, Dr. Harbour, and for all of those listening. On behalf of the WOMA Education Committee, the WOMA Board of Directors, and myself as moderator of this podcast, I want to sincerely, sincerely thank our speaker, Dr. Philip Harbour, and also thank those of you who listened. The goal of these WOMA podcasts is to update you on a topic of current interest to occupational medicine. We know that this topic raises many more questions, and we hope that this information will generate further interaction beyond this podcast. This concludes today's podcast. Thank you.